Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good afternoon and welcome. I'm delighted to welcome you to the Institute today for this discussion with Tony Blair on this inescapable question, coronavirus year on. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director of the Institute. A few brief housekeeping uh, notes that we have to say. Do start sending in questions as soon as you want. That really means from now onwards. Type your question into the Q&A box at the side on the right of your screen, and we'll get those immediately. We're going to be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFGBlair. Please do join us with that. And we'll have a video and sound recording on our website within 24 hours, just in case you want to see this again. As you'll hardly need reminding, Tony Blair was the UK's Prime Minister from 1997 to 2007, winning three consecutive elections. Among many achievements which may be relevant to our discussion today about coronavirus, he secured the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, set devolution in motion, and tripled the UK's aid to Africa. Since leaving office, he spent a lot of his time on improving government, countering extremism, and working in the Middle East, much of that through the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. His institutes commented extensively during the coronavirus crisis and has published two reports in the past week uh, on this, one last week on lessons from the lockdown and how that should inform the new roadmap, and one today called The New Necessary on how to prepare for pandemics of the future, which it thinks will be with us. I should note that the IFG has published a report as well on the roadmap, and you can find it on our website. Tony Blair himself is also credited by The Telegraph with having had a good pandemic, slightly unfortunate phrase, but he indeed did argue early on for many of the steps that the government has later taken, such as a gap between vaccine doses. Tony Blair, a very warm welcome. Thanks, Robin. Let me ask you to start with whether the roadmap that the Prime Minister has now given the country is a workable one, in your view. I think it's workable. I mean, it's important that we are driven by by the data rather than by the date. But, you know, this is incredibly difficult because the government's bound to have to measure it as it goes. There are a lot of uncertainties in it. But I think, yeah, I mean, what I've been concentrating more on, because I think you can you can divide up the, the periods of easing in different ways, but I've been more concentrating on what is the infrastructure you need for the future in order to make sure that you're, you know, that this wave uh, and the lockdown and then the easing, that this is the last time we go through this cycle. Your report last week, uh, the first one of these, this, this pair of reports, said the government should pick one goal in this. What do you think that should be? Well, I think it's about making sure that you've, you, you've got the disease fully under control. So that's a question of, of looking at the, as I say, at the data rather than at specific dates. And, you know, working out how far are you along the path of immunity for the country? Because in the end, the, the purpose of the vaccination program is to get to a, <clears throat> an immunized population where you can then move freely because the consequences of the disease are hugely reduced. So this is, you know, this is why accelerating that vaccine rollout, which the government, to be fair, I think have now done, has been from the very beginning an absolute priority. And you know, making sure that we get as many people vaccinated with the first dose as possible. I mean, we can restock in order to I meet. Mean, I think roughly 70% of the population will have the AstraZeneca one at the moment rather than the Pfizer one. So probably, you know, since the AstraZeneca doses 
the second dose is most effective three months after the first dose, it's sensible to push ahead with this one-dose policy. I'm going to come on to vaccines in, in a moment, and you've said a lot about it that is, is very interesting. But I just want to ask you, as we are looking back over the past year, as well as looking forward, uh, one, one figure really stands out, that about two-thirds of the deaths in the UK have occurred since September, and indeed about half since November. Would you say this was a failure of government? Well, it, a lot of it's happened because there's a, been a new strain that's much more transmissible, but unfortunately not less deadly. Look, I think it, you, you can go back and you can look at certain decisions that were taken and criticise them. And, you know, I've made certain criticisms, but I've always done that in the context of recognising this is the toughest challenge that any government in modern times has ever faced. Whoever was in power would have found this extremely difficult. So, yes, you can go back at the beginning and say we should have <clears throat> shut down faster. You can say that um, when we eased after the first lockdown, we eased without, I think there should have been much more mass testing in place in order to put put containment there when you were easing up. But I, and, and there'll be a time when you can go back over all of these things. But I, I think that in the end, as I say, the most important thing now is to say, well, what is going to work for the future? How are we going to be able to to live with what is going to be a completely new set of circumstances, given what we just experienced? All right, so let's take a step into the future. And your report today is called The New Necessary. Perhaps you can take us into your view of what the new normal is going to be. Yeah, so I think the one thing that's very clear when you, you go into this in, in detail, and like a lot of people, you know, my whole knowledge of this sphere, both of, of, of science and of um, pharmaceuticals and production and distribution, all of this is vastly enlarged from what it was. But, but there, are, there are stages that um, we now can describe with much more accuracy. So the first thing is that it's likely that these types of pathogens will be present and can give rise to pandemics um, in a way that's never happened before in our world. So if you go back over the last 20 years, you can now see where we had near misses. And if you look forward, there is a risk at least, not just of mutations of this particular uh, virus, but the creation of other uh, viruses, which could have the same transmissibility as this virus, but potentially even more lethal consequences. So because that is, is not a negligible risk, you're going to have to prepare both your own country and the broader world for this new environment in which our health security is going to be positioned. So that means um, better data and surveillance to be able to spot uh, when these pandemics are arising, um, faster research and development in order to be able to develop vaccines, antivirals, other biologics to deal with them, uh, vaccine production at a much greater pace than what we've seen over these last 15 months, and the ability to produce billions of doses of vaccine at scale and at speed. And then finally, distribution and rollout, taking account of the fact that vaccine, that uh, virus anywhere is virus everywhere, and that therefore there is a, a combined collective global interest in making sure that the global infrastructure is in place, not merely infrastructure within each country. 
I mean, today's report, I was very struck by the way it talks about the need to, to, uh, to treat um, preparedness for a pandemic like a military operation. And you've been describing some of the elements of that. But I was also wondering at the same time how easy it is for politicians to prepare for a threat that uh, if, it, if it isn't there right now and may never, at least in their time in office, actually be there. And I wanted at this point to bring in a, a quote, if you don't mind, from your autobiography, which uh, was discussing something some time ago, warnings of a flu pandemic in, in 2005. And you said, I'm afraid I tried to do the minimum we could with the minimum expenditure. I understood the risk, but it didn't seem to me that the pan panic was quite justified. Oh, the endless meetings and hype of it all. Uh, page 520 of the IFG's copy, um, well-thumbed copy of your yes. autobiography. Well, how does that look now? Uh, well, if we haven't had a flu pandemic, but we've had a pandemic. Yeah, so you've got to learn from that. So now, I mean, that's why I don't, it's not surprising people didn't put in place a vast infrastructure sort of 15 years ago. But now that you've had the experience, yeah, you've got to learn from it. And I think yeah. the thing that I didn't understand then or until very recently, until this really began, is this concept that we have had near misses. I mean, we regarded SARS and MERS as essentially something happening out in Asia. It was of very limited nature and it really barely impinged on our consciousness. Now, what is interesting and one of the reasons why those countries oper operated and acted far faster in relation to COVID-19 was for them, this really was a near-death experience. And so they learned a lot of lessons from that. Now, we've had this now. So, yes, it, it, I think it's right to look at it almost in national security terms. And we, we prepare ourselves to and have the ability to defend ourselves, even though we don't intend that we should or want that we should have to do that. But I think now, and given... It's also this interesting thing that's happened as a result partially of globalization, partly of changes in biodiversity. Uh, there's a much greater possibility of the spread from animals to humans than ever before of these types of, of, of um, conditions. So, yeah, no, now you, you, I think every major developed country will want to have its own infrastructure in place. And I think the world as a whole will need a, a much better infrastructure. So in the work we do in Africa, for example, my institute's very active there. You know, we work with almost 20 different governments there. I think the continent of Africa will want to have its own manufacturing capacity. It will want to have much better diagnostic capability. Um, and it's not going to put itself in the position where it is at the present time, where the continent of Africa is scrabbling for vaccine um, when it desperately needs it. Vaccines. There's very important points you make, including about how, for example, South, South Korea um, benefited from the past threat of, of, um, of, of coronavirus type viruses. Um, here, the government's vaccine rollout has been very impressive. The EU's not so much. Is this a Brexit dividend, would you say? Look, we could have done this inside Europe. We didn't need to leave Europe in order to have control of our own destiny, as it were, over vaccines. And I, I think any British government, especially given that we were, as it were, the creators of one of the major vaccines, which is the AstraZeneca one. I think any British government would have wanted to, to take charge of our own situation. But no, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure there are many people who supported Brexit who, who have um, engaged in a certain amount of, uh, well, schadenfreude, if they use that word. But um, 
But the reality is, by the way, the European Commission should just learn a simple lesson from it, which is that in future, when you, you've, you've got a situa situation like this, do what the British government and the American administration both did, put the, the, the purchase of vaccines in the hands of a small number of people, a dedicated team who aren't uh, functionaries, but who are people who are experts in doing precisely what you need done. I think we can still use the word schadenfreude even outside the EU. Um, what would you do, though, about, about the EU and Angela Merkel now not wanting or not being very keen on the Oxford vaccine? Well, I think to be fair to her, it's just that the, the, the German system has said it's not offering it to people over 65. But, um, you know, this is one of the things that is necessary and it's one of the things we deal with in our, our paper is your... And in a way, the WHO should do this, but I, I'm not sure it's really got the authority to do it at the moment. You need to make sure that there, there is information out there that is proper and accurate. So this whole business of AstraZeneca and the over 65s is based on a complete misunderstanding. It's just that in the control in the control group for the trial, there weren't enough people of the older group in order that they had the sufficient numbers to be able to give firm trial readouts. But we don't need a trial today. <laughs> We've got the actual real world experience. Vast numbers of people over the age of 65, including myself, have received the AstraZeneca vaccine. We've got the data now from just published in relation to Scotland the other day. It's had a dramatic effect. So this is it's also, by the way, not true that the AstraZeneca vaccine will not give you protection against the South Africa variant. It will. It may not give you as much as you would like, but it will still make a significant difference. So, again, it's a mistake of countries are turning that vaccine away uh, on those grounds. And, you know, all of these vaccines, by the way, I mean, I've gone into this in a lot of detail. It's that they'll probably at a later time, a few years down the road, There'll be a vast, obviously, a vast amount of evidence as to how individual vaccines have worked. Some may end up being more effective with some groups of people than other groups. But basically, of the, what is it, eight, ten vaccines that are going to be the main vaccines that people are using around the world, they're all pretty effective, including, by the way, the Russian one and the Chinese one, or the Russian ones and the Chinese ones. But you've, you've spoken out a lot about vaccine passports and thinking that, that this is um, the way forward, an inescapable way forward. How far would you go on this? Would you um, allow uh, employers to make it a, a condition of working somewhere, including in, in the NHS and care homes? Well, it's very, it's very difficult. The first thing is what I really want is for people to have a, an easily usable identification of their, their COVID-19 status vaccinated or tested, because the thing that it just strikes me as obvious, take travel. It's going to be the case that if you're opening up your country to international travel, you're going to want to know the COVID status of people coming in. We want to know it now, which is why we demand tests from people. So once vaccination becomes widespread, it seems to be inconceivable that, for example, if Greece is opening up its tourist industry, it doesn't say we want to know, you know, have you had a test, a negative test very recently? So are you tested? We won't test you again. Or if you've been vaccinated, then you're vaccinated. So that's 
And we know that vaccination reduces very significantly transmission. But what I'm asking is, is what the UK government, yeah, what do you it, think the UK uh, government uh, should, should do and should it make it a condition? Right, but if other governments are doing it, we're going to be doing it too. So that's the reality in things like travel. Now, I agree when it comes to, you know, you've asked another thing, care homes, places of work. Look, I think, for example, in care homes, it, it wouldn't, won't surprise me if employers want to say, if you're working in a care home because you're looking after people who are vulnerable, we need to know whether you're vaccinated or not. I, I, personally, I don't think that's unreasonable. So do you want to get into a situation where if you're not vaccinated, you're, you're refused to, to go to your workplace? Well, I don't think people are going to go that far. But, you know, I'm thinking of, I mean, you, look, you, you've got people working at the Institute of Government. I've got in my London office, you know, we employ several hundred people in the Institute as a whole. But let's say at any one time we've got 120, 150 people working in the office in London. I mean, I don't think we're going to get to the stage of saying, well, look, you can't come in unless you can prove you've been vaccinated. But I think we will want to provide at least the facility for people to be tested. And I think if people are working in close proximity with others, and they may, for example, have some vulnerability themselves, you know, perhaps they've got a, a serious asthma condition, yeah. you know, they'll want to know. So this is for me just about the common sense of the situation is it's going to be a major factor. So put some system around it. I can't determine every bit of the rules and regulations now, but put them in place in a concerted way. Otherwise, you're just going to find it grows like topsy with no control over it at all. This is one of, one of the enduring questions of this that is going to go on and on uh, about the obligation to society versus personal liberty, and we may well come back to it. Um, yeah, well, how would you how, make this point from it? Personal liberty also means that you, you're able to have the ability to travel, for example, because someone else is demanding proof. And one of the things I'm working on with African countries at the moment, my real worry is if they fall behind in vaccination and they've got no proper means of recording tests and vaccinations, you're going to find bits of the world effectively cut off. So their liberty is going to be severely restricted. I don't know. That's a really important point. Just, just thinking ahead, though, to next week, we've got the budget. Um, how would you pay for all this? Well, at the moment, you're going to have to, to just keep the economy moving. So I don't, I don't think this is the moment for a fiscal tightening. But long term, look, one of the things my institute works on is my belief is the single most important thing happening in the real world is the technology revolution. That is going to change everything. In my view, the, the central task for today's political leaders is how do you understand that revolution, harness it for the public good, right? So I think what you need to do longer term is then look at how we reduce costs. So because at some point you're going to have to bring uh, the fiscal situation under control. How do you reduce costs by driving value through the system, by making reforms and changes, including the use of technology? Let's go on to some of the international points which you've been raising in, in all this. Um, and, you, and you mentioned what, what Russia and China are doing with their vaccines. Is there a vaccine diplomacy battle here? And, and in fact, are they winning it? Well, I think there is a sort of vaccine diplomacy game, uh, for sure. Um, and they're not the only two playing it. But Look, I think right now, countries are desperate for vaccines. So I must be talking to six different governments virtually every couple of days. 
who just at least want to get their vaccination program going. Because what has happened with the new variant is that because they're more transmissible, countries that previously thought they could vaccinate, at, not at leisure exactly, but vaccinate through the course of 2021, are now finding their population saying to them, we need it now. Okay. So anyone who's got vaccine is, is in a strong position. But I just say to you, by the middle of this year, the world will have a very substantial supply of vaccine. So you've got Johnson & Johnson now coming on, you'll have Novavax coming on, you'll have much greater quantities of AstraZeneca. Um, you know, these, what I call the big workhorse vaccines, Sinopharm, probably Sputnik, I think they're going to manufacture well over a billion doses of that. I mean, by the middle of this year, some, a lot of these problems should ease. But that's when you're going to need to put systems in place so that you've got proper data around who's vaccinated, who's not vaccinated, what happens to the people who have been. How would you advise Boris Johnson to use the G7 uh, summit in June um, to advance what the UK can do uh, for, for the world and indeed in this uh, diplomacy game that you've described? I think it's very simple. What you should do is say, what are the things that are going to be clearly and obviously necessary? That's why our, our paper's called The New Necessary, because it's, it's, it's trying to describe the infrastructure that the world will need to handle these things in future. And he should try and give leadership and shape to that, whether it's around data and surveillance or building the templates for research and development on the potential pathogens or you know, how the world gets the right amount of bioreactor capacity to produce vaccine. You know, all of this should be, uh, should be something where the world is coming together. Um, and I, as I was saying in the, the interview I gave this morning, in my view, had the world come together at the very beginning of this, it could have shaped several months off the, the path of this, this, this disease and therefore saved us vast amounts of money and lives. And your paper puts a lot of emphasis on, on data and the quality of data. Do you think that the world has got that from China on coronavirus? Um, you mean got that in what sense from China? Um, for data of the, 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 the incidence and the spread of the, uh, of, of the disease and, and the rate of infection. And you mean the importance of has, the data? Has, has the, world, the world, including the World Health Organization, oh, I see got what you mean. the quality of, of data from China? Oh. I, I don't know. There are people better qualified than me to say that. I think there's still a lot of anxiety as to whether we have the, the, the right information that we need. But I think in, we, we really make two points in this report. Number one, um, we need better surveillance system, in other words, so that you can accumulate the data. I mean, you should be able to tell fairly easily if there are major hotspot problems happening with health anywhere in the world. You know, how you then get that data and analyze it fast so that you if you spot um, a new virus emerging, you, you, you spot it quickly. Um, that's one aspect. And then the other aspect is that I do think the more the world harmonizes its data systems so that all the information we're going to need in order to prepare us for the future, um, data about this pandemic and these vaccines and what's happened, you know, the more of that data we have, the better it's going to be for us. There's an awful lot in your report on that kind of thing. I urge people to read it. It's a, it is a fascinating account of how we might prepare for all this. We've got a lot of questions come in, and let me turn to some of those now. We've got a cluster of them on 
really devolution and people wanting your thoughts on um, what, what impact coronavirus has had and could continue to have on devolution and whether it's set up strains in the union, how Boris Johnson should respond to those. I should say, uh, given the, the day's uh, statement from Alex Salmon, we also have one from Sky in that vein saying, what um, effect do you think the Salmon uh, versus Sturgeon business will have on, um, on independence for, for Scotland? But a whole cl cluster on devolution and coronavirus. Yeah, so let me do with devolution and coronavirus. I mean, I'll, the Alex Salmon and Nicola Sturgeon thing is not not my uh, not my whatever. Anyway, so the the well, I think what it should hopefully show to people that those are things that we you know we we do better in the devolved way. There are some things we'd be doing better as the United Kingdom. And I think the, the you know, the, the research capabilities, for example, for the future um, in being able to identify um, new pathogens and potential ways of dealing with them, that's something upon which the UK as a whole can cooperate. On the vaccine production, the UK as a whole is involved in that. And it helps to have the, the, the heft and weight of the UK to deal with all the problems that arise from coronavirus, um, including in, in, uh, in, in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. So I, I think, you know, what I would say is the coronavirus shows you the benefit. Um, how we deal with coronavirus shows you the benefit of being able to deal with it on a UK wide basis in respect of how we do some of the major things necessary in order to combat the disease. Obviously, then on the ground, how you deliver, for example, the vaccine rollout, that's a matter for each individual part of the UK. Okay, great. We've got one from Kate who says, hi, I'm a secondary school student, and I'm wondering what you think the long-term effects of graduating during COVID uh, will be for students. Thank you. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I... I feel very sorry for people who have had to go through the last year um, in in schools, particularly, but also in universities. And I mean, I think we should definitely look at ways we, we help people to catch up with the learning that they have missed. I think inevitably it's going to be a, a pretty rough and ready outcome for for this year. And I'm, I'm sorry for people who are in that situation. But I think, you know, with the right focus, we can, we can help um, both make sure that people aren't disadvantaged too permanently as a result of this, and also that, that we're providing the, the catch-up that is going to be necessary so that when people, um, if they're at school, when they go to university, they're not going to be at a disadvantage then in taking their degree. And I think, you know, one of the things we need to look at very carefully is what what has been the experience of students during this last year. There will be different students, often I think probably those from the most disadvantaged backgrounds who will have had the toughest time, and how do we provide special help for them to, to do that catch up. Um, so I'm not, I think we can probably deal, as I say, in a rough and ready way with what grades people get at the end of this year, but what's going to be a more concern is to make sure that the the learning that people may have missed during this year, they've got the ability to catch up um, when they then 
move on after after school. Thanks. We've got one from Tim Bale saying, what can the leader of the opposition usefully do in these circumstances? And be critical where he needs to be, constructive where he should be, uh, but most of all, prepare for the future. You know, this is, I think the criticism of Keir has been, I think, uh, very unfair. There's nothing he can do at the moment in the course of the pandemic. The only thing that matters is what the government does. That's, that's natural. But once we get through the worst of this, hopefully reasonably soon, the attention is then going to go to what does the future hold? And that's where the opposition's got to make its mark. Well, the criticism so far of him has been that he's he's been saying, well, I support the government, but we would have done it better or faster. Yeah, but you know, it's very hard to, to know what else he, and some of his criticisms, by the way, have been perfectly good. But, you know, the public, and, and it's always important when you're in a, leader of the political party to recognize the difference between what your most sort of um, hyperactive activists want you to do and where the broad swathe of the public is. The public now at this point in the pandemic, they, they really would not give Keir any points at all for looking as if he was just charging around trying to make trouble for the government. The thing to focus on is how do you build a better country afterwards, recognizing that it's those in the most precarious employment, those that are in the toughest social circumstances that are going to have done worse than this pandemic. And you and I will both know, with organisations like ours and the people that work for us, we've managed to come through this in reasonable order. But there are lots of people all over the country who will have either lost their jobs or who will lose their jobs once the Chancellor's anaesthetic is withdrawn. And those people creating better opportunities for them, creating a fairer society afterwards. That's the task for Labour. My view is, as I say, they should put at the centre of that how you harness the technology revolution. But it's it's then when you get to what does the future hold, that's when Labour should come into its own. But it's got to be done in a way where it's addressing the future um, and recognising that a combination of COVID and Brexit has changed the context in which the economic and social debate will take place. Okay, thank you for that. We have one from Claire Ellicott from the Daily Mail asking you whether you have pinched ideas from Matt Hancock, including delaying the second jab, and whether the health secretary is still speaking to you. Uh, so, thank you, the Daily Mail. Um, but the the idea for the first dose actually came out of uh, it's the conversations I had with experts, and in particular the recognition that AstraZeneca that it, second dose, because of course you should have two doses, the second dose is most effective 10 to 12 weeks after the first. So given that they're ramping up production all the time, there's no point in holding back doses. You might as well give people the first dose. So the argument's more powerful with AstraZeneca action than it is with Pfizer, but even so, Pfizer first dose give you, after three weeks, roughly 70% protection. So I, it came out of... I discussions that I had with a range of different experts and I published it just before Christmas. But having said that, you know, we shouldn't get into a, I have a perfectly good relationship with people in government. I'm very happy to, to work with them or interact with them. Um, but, you know, getting into a sort of, um, I don't quite know how to put it politely, a, a sort of game of who, who thought up what first is, is not either very seemly or very sensible. All right, we've got one from Perry Six from Queen Mary University, uh, London. Um, 
There's an interesting one about in, in managing a, a really protracted crisis like this one, which decisions should continue to be made in number 10 and which should be delegated to local authorities and so on. And this is something the government has been wrestling with right the way through from the delivery of, of, of PPE um, and test and trace and so on. And it's, a, it's one we, do, we don't have ready answers to either at the Institute, but I'm interested in yours. Um, well, I think you, you can't always draw very strict lines, but for me, the big strategic decisions should be taken in government. So whether you do test and trace or um, we're just talking about whether you decide to give the first dose to people or not, these are things that obviously are best done centrally. The delivery mechanisms, the closer they get to the locality, probably the better you'll deliver. So I think, I mean, I, I personally, one of the, the missing things in this has been mass testing. I mean, I've been on a, this for a, a year. and I, I think I've only had limited success on it. It is correct that the rapid antigen tests, although they're much, much better now and improving in quality all the time, it's true that they're not as accurate as the PCR tests because sometimes these rapid tests don't always, um, they don't always identify very low viral load, but they are incredibly useful if they're used locally in order, for example, to um, help get universities back to normal. They're now going to be used in, in schools. But I think that type of thing is much, much better done locally. And I still think testing is going to become extremely important, even as the nation gets vaccinated. You'll still want to, to test people because it's still possible to get coronavirus, even if you've been vaccinated. Thanks. We've got one from someone who hasn't given their name, just saying, uh, when do you think is the right time for a comprehensive inquiry into the government's handling of the pandemic, an inquiry that the Prime Minister has said he, he will back? I think what, once you're through the worst of it and out the other side, the, the only thing I say about this is, is make it an inquiry with people who really know what they're talking about in order to learn lessons. How do we do this for the future? You know, I, I, I don't think it'll be very productive if it, if it turns into a sort of blame game. I think it's much better to focus uh, constructively on what what is it that we've learned, which means that the next time this happens, we're far better placed. OK, we've got one from Joanne saying a number of African countries have made huge strides um, over the recent years um, for all kinds of reasons. What should we be doing to ensure that the pandemic doesn't um doesn't doesn't give them um doesn't doesn't reverse the progress. Yeah, it's again a very good question. I mean, we should be making sure both that they get access to vaccine. Um, you've got the the Covax initiative, which is going to and has agreed the purchase of a large amount of vaccine for uh, for the continent of Africa, but that will only cover about twenty percent of the population. So we need to make sure that that certainly as Countries like the UK end up, as we will do, finding we've got orders for much more vaccine than we um, can can use here in this country. We should be making sure that that uh, that that goes to countries in the developing world. So, getting them vaccine is really important. Helping them economically, as has been suggested actually by the the G20 summit last November, that's also very important, and. I think working with African countries to build that um, health capacity on the continent 
is also going to be very important for their future. I mean, for a lot of these countries, they weren't so badly hit in the first wave of the pandemic. Uh, they've been worse hit in the second wave. But still, some of their biggest problems, frankly, are economic. And, um, you know, there's a there's a huge I mean, Africa's come a long way in these last couple of decades. Um, but I still think there's a lot more that the world can do to help the continent of Africa. And one thing just to, to say in parenthesis, which I think people often forget, when we're all talking about climate change, which we are now quite rightly, without helping the continent of Africa, whose population is going to double in the next 30 to 40 years, so that it's over 2 billion people, without helping that continent to develop sustainably, we won't deal with the climate change problem. So that should also be a big focus for us. Thank you. And that partly answers some of the questions that people have, have, have sent in also about the link with uh, climate change. Let me ask what uh, Kerry um, has asked a question, and, and she's really speaking for several people here who sent in questions, just probing um, what you've been saying about vaccine passports um, and what that means within the UK. And she's asking whether, whether you think it's inevitable domestically and what you would do um, to manage the practicalities and the potential discriminatory effects of this. And she's thinking about you know, venue, going for sports venues or music venues or so on. So I think you just need to, you need, first of all, to decide the principle that there should be some framework that's decided around these things. And then you come to the individual items that go in it. But the first thing is to decide it's not just going to happen. You know, you're actually going to, you as government are going to take a view as to what the right way of handling this is. Now, I think for, for venues, you know, again, I suspect people will, will, I think they'll want to know. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you, you're, you're barred from entering if you, if you can't show your COVID status, as I say, tested or vaccinated. But you're going to find that venues where large numbers of people are going to congregate close to each other, They'll, people will, you know, they'll want to have some rules around it. And I think other people will feel more comfortable if they know that there has been at least some requirement, um, even if it's not that someone's vaccinated, that they've at least been tested before they go. I, I, otherwise, I think it's hard to see how people have the confidence to go back to life as normal. See, life as normal is not just about government saying we allow you to do this. It's also about people feeling safe to do it. So that's that's the balance. So I don't, I mean, I don't think it's, you know, I'm sure there are a host of really detailed things that need to be got into in this. But I I think the basic principle that I'm outlining is, well, two really. One, you should have a framework, and two, you know, you you will for many, many things that we do people will want to be able to show their uh, their vaccination. You know, they'll want to be able to put before people something that says, um, you know, I've been vaccinated and, you know, that is a verifiable and, and um, you know, and, and valid certificate, whatever you want to call it, a vaccination. 
Um, all right, but it's the discriminatory effect that, that is bothering people in these questions. In, in, in what way? You mean if someone isn't vaccinated? Doesn't have a vaccine or feels that they can't have it for health reasons or whatever, they are shut out of potentially jobs, yeah. potentially going to venues, potentially yeah, that's, even... That's exactly why education. Right, because obviously if someone is not vaccinated for a very good reason, right, because, for example, they're one of the small number of people who, who might have an adverse reaction to a vaccine, then you've got to make special provision for those. So I'm, I'm not, you know, the, as I say, once you decide there should be rules, you've then got to decide what they are, but obviously you've got to have common sense in it. It's like there are some people who, you know, literally can't wear masks for various reasons. That's a, okay, normally you should, but they can't. We, you've just got to make allowances for that. What about just because a lot of people are interested in this? What about choice, though? So someone saying, "I just don't want," on whatever reasons, not 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 medical ones. I don't want to have the vaccine, but I still want to be able to attend a university, go to go to a music gig, um, go go into a hospital, whatever. What and 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 go to my job. So then you so could decide, you could decide what to do about that, but you might decide, for example, well, at least you should be tested. And if you're not prepared to be vaccinated because you just object to vaccinations, well, you know, uh, then it's in the interest of other people that you at least take some precautions so that you're not carrying the disease. I mean, I think that's, you know, we... There's an interesting point whether testing could become an alternative to vaccination to answer this 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 problem that is bothering a lot of people. Yes, and, and also you you... Well, I hope there aren't too many people who, as a matter of principle, don't take the vaccine because really it isn't very sensible. <laughs> but um, but there are also tests coming on the market now, which are rapid PCR tests too. So there's, you know, you, 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 there may be there may be all sorts of ways around this. But people always look at this from the point of view of what government's demanding from you. But I also look at it from the point of view of the, the individual who's also going to want to have something, you know, on their mobile, for example, which allows them definitively to say, look, here, here it is. Because whether we like it or not, if you're interacting with the outside world, other people will be demanding it. And, and the, the international travel is just one very, I, I think, very obvious aspect of that. Well, we're coming right to the end now. Um, so I'm simply going to scoop up several questions that people have asked of, of whether you're taking a summer holiday this year. Or whatever, in a sense. Sorry, I haven't thought about it. I haven't thought that far. I'm, I'm going to, as I said to you earlier, problem, I'm going to have a haircut is about the first thing. <laughs> it has not been this long since I was in a rock band. But anyway, which is a long time ago. We are very sadly going to leave it there. There are an awful lot of interesting questions about, about reaching into the past of foot and mouth and the use of scientific advice and generally what we can learn from what the UK has done well in vaccines and what it's done badly in test and trace. But um, I'm going to spare you those because the guillotine of the clock is, is, is coming down and um, we will have to explore them in other IFG events. Thank you all for sending in terrific questions. I'm really sorry for all the ones I couldn't get in. Thank you all very much indeed for watching. And Tony Blair, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Debron, for, for listening and watching. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk events.